You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So I'd like to read chapter 11 from verses 14 through 30. That's, it's my intention to get to chapter 14, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 30 today. Boy, you didn't know Daniel had 14 chapters, did you? Well, you don't have my Bible. I'm on page 1158, which is the correct page. Daniel chapter 11, 14 through 30. Now, in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege mound, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand." And he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. And in his place a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant." And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. And he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army, so the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large arm, large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Chitim will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action, so he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant." So as we go through this section, I would like to call your attention again to the incredible precision with which Daniel was instructed about what is to happen in the times to come just beyond him, a couple, 300 years beyond him, and when we get to it in the end times. 
This is one of the reasons that infidels, that the false, that unbelievers, that liberal scholars cannot believe this is a prophecy because it is just too accurate. What a marvelous thing to see God predicting the future, to see it come to pass. And again, this is a comfort to us that what he has said has happened and what he has said for later will happen. It will happen exactly as he predicted. And in those times, as Daniel is taught later on or is instructed later on, the people who live in those times will have an understanding that the people who didn't live in those times did not. In much the same way that as we look back on the histories that have been written about the times from 530 B.C. to 164 B.C., 145 B.C., and see how they came to pass exactly as was predicted in the first 35 verses of Daniel. What a remarkable thing. But we shouldn't look on it as remarkable other than from a human standpoint. From the standpoint of the sovereign God of the universe, this is His plan. And everything comes to pass at His appointed time. Exactly. Jim is has made the statement, and I love it, the world is falling apart exactly on schedule. (laughs) And that is so true. So true. And as we watch these times, you will also notice that nothing has come, nothing has changed under the sun. Nothing is new. The intrigues of the past are identical, at least in substance, to the intrigues of today. People betray each other. They lie to each other. They use power for nefarious reasons. They destroy, they annihilate, and yet there's always a remnant. I want you to think about the words refine, refine, reform, and purge as we continue through this. Whatever God does, one of the things that He is always doing is He is refining, reforming, and purging His people. He's making them more like Christ. He's bringing them back to being like Christ. And He's purging from the ranks of believers those who really aren't of us, so that they will go out from us, so that it will be known that they were never of us. And those are the things that are happening in this section of Scripture. They will happen in every other section of Scripture that we read through Daniel here. Um, With that as an introduction, last week we looked at the time that many would rise up against the king of the south. Verse 14, the violent ones among your own people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill a vision, but they will fall down. So Philip V of Macedonia joined with Antiochus III to take and plunder Egypt, and it didn't happen in the way they wanted. Ptolemy, um, I better not jump my, own, jump my own shark here. They were joined by some of the violent pro-Seleucid Jews who thought that a victory of Antiochus III would be in their best interest. This is always a bad idea to try and help God fulfill prophecy. He, he, he's, it's not like he's up there going, I sure hope people do this so that this prophecy will come to pass. God doesn't wring his hands. (laughs) Yeah, I am God. I don't need your help. Well put. This, of course, failed when the forces of Ptolemy V defeated Antiochus III. Ptolemy IV's advisor, Sosebius, who was involved in bringing the child king Ptolemy V to power, had retired. His place was taken by another of the clique in the Gothicles, who provoked an insurrection against the child king and was killed. During the intrigue, Antiochus III had made serious inroads into Egypt, assisted by Philip V, 
or Philip V, and the Jewish revolutionaries, the battle was still lost and the ceasefire pal- struggle for Palestine continued. So again, remember, this is Palestine, Israel, the beautiful land, caught in the middle of battles back and forth. Dep- dep- uh, depredations occurred, deaths occurred, destruction occurred, and it was all fought back and forth across um, the, the south, the south and the north, uh, Syria, what we call Syria today, and Egypt. Destruction ensued. Verse 15, we're going to take up 17 as we left off at verse 16. And I just want to remind ourselves of the, con, uh, the context. So then the king of the north will come and cast up a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city and the forces of the south will not stand their ground and even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to take a stand. So we're still looking at Antiochus 3. Harking back to 13, verse 13, this portion of the prophecy describes part of the return campaign that Antiochus waged against the south, against Egypt. A siege ramp was, was mounted up, was built to take the city of Sidon, and we looked at that last week on the map known as Sidon, the, the gulf there, or on the southern portion of the sea, of the Mediterranean Sea. This would have been Antiochus III's first major thrust into Palestine in 203 B.C., by 199 B.C., he did hold most of Palestine, Antiochus III did. But in continuing, one of the generals of the armies of Egypt named Scopus drove him back. But in continuing seesaw fashion, Antiochus III came back and defeated Scopus at Peneus, and then at Sidon, where Scopus had retreated to. The first general of Egypt, Scopus, who was able to command who was an able commander, was followed by three other especially picked generals. Remember, their names were Europus, Menacles, and Demonius. Demoenius, I guess is how you would actually pronounce that. And none of them could stand their ground, it says in the Scriptures, against the king of the north. All three generals attempted to retake Sidon, but they could not. Verse 16, But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land. Remember, the beautiful land is Israel with destruction in his hand. So he comes against him, again, describes Antiochus three. In his victory, he was able to do as he pleased, that is to impose his imperial will, his imperial will, yeah, he pulled the wool over their eyes, his imperial will on the Egyptians. He spent time in Palestine, specifically Israel, and brought authority over all of Israel. The Hebrew word translated as destruction, remember we talked about, it actually means completion. And for a time, Antiochus had complete control of all of Palestine, of all that area. He did not pillage Palestine at this time, though. If destruction is implied, it would be the destruction and implication of the authority that he held over the land of Palestine. His rule, his word would have been rule, would have been law. And the Jews, the Israelites of the time, would have had no freedom to practice their their religion toward Yahweh as they would have wished. So this was the destruction that had come. With that, we'll launch into verse 17. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace. This intrigue is interesting. Which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. (laughs) This woman had a mind of her own. Antiochus proposed to gain control over all of Egypt. Since he did not attack Egypt at this time, the idea here is that he had the power of controlling all the land just to the north of Egypt in other eastern territories and other eastern territories. This gave him a strong position to negotiate with Egypt. They were on the border of Egypt. Egypt would be looking and seeing the missiles on the border, if you will. And so he knew, the Egyptians knew that that their time might be up. 
At this time, Antiochus struck a, che- a treaty with, with Egypt, which would have been Ptolemy V Epiphanes. Look how they all take each other's uh, manifestation of God. Epiphanes, a great one. Antiochus, okay, now here's the first time you're going to hear the name that you've all heard for so many decades since you're, well, some of you for so many decades since you were in high school. So uh, Antiochus gave his daughter Cleopatra. How many of you have heard of Cleopatra? And I asked last week, did you know there were seven of them? And the one you've all heard about, and I heard about, was number seven. This is number one. Cleopatra. <clears throat> to Ptolemy V, Epiphanes. They constructed this bargain in 197 B.C., but the marriage actually took place in 193 B.C. because Ptolemy was still only ten years old. And they knew you probably ought not to get married at ten. So at 14, Ptolemy V married Cleopatra I, who was the royal princess of Egypt. One of the purposes of giving his daughter in marriage would be to have an insider in the Egyptian throne room and to begin to insert his own wishes into the policies of Egypt. Antiochus was preparing to war against Rome itself and would need Egypt as a staging area. So we find out from historical records that exactly as this verse shows, Cleopatra I did not assist her father Antiochus III. She rather became a proper wife to Ptolemy V and supported him. History records that the Egyptians actually gave direct assistance to the Romes, to Rome, against Antiochus. This completely fulfills the, the phrase, this phrase which says, but she will not take a stand for him but be on, or be on his side. She was not on the side of, her, of Antiochus III, uh, her father. She took the side of her husband, Ptolemy. And in that, in that way, there was more resistance going on. So, historically, again, it is remar- it's not remarkable to us, but it's got to be remarkable to people who hate the Scriptures that this was fulfilled exactly as predicted. Any questions or comments? On verse 17. Verse 18. Then he will turn his face to coastlands, to the coastlands, and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn, Against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So let me see if this got put in the wrong place. It's not happening. So technology strikes again. Okay. But whoa, right there. That's a good one. Yeah, we'll we'll stay there. Okay. So the coastlands mentioned here are verified historically as being the Aegean area, which would be the Aegean Sea, the Greek area, Hellespont. Um, all of those areas right there that you can see, or I guess the Aegean area right there. In 197 B.C., the year the treaty with Ptolemy V commenced, Antiochus III campaigned in this area, and he was successful for a time. He will capture many. He was successful for a time. He took the islands and the sea and much of Asia Minor and Greece, and in 196 B.C., he subdued part of Thrace. At this point in 195, he was joined by the well-known enemy of Rome, Hannibal. Hannibal from Carthage, and he, Car, Carthage, Carthage, that shows you what I'm thinking of, from Carthage, and he was encouraged to invade Greece, and he established a stronghold at Thermopylae. So he, he was joined with the guy who had just defeated um, Hannibal, or just, just been defeated, I guess I should say. Oh, hadn't yet been defeated, but he was a well-known enemy of Rome. Let me put it that way, because that's how the Scripture puts it. The commander spoken of here was a general, a Roman general named Lucius 
Cornelius Scipio, poor guy, the younger brother of Scipio Africanus, who had defeated Hannibal in 202 B.C. at the Battle of Zama. During a treaty conference in Lysimica, Thrace, in Lysimica, Thrace, Antiochus III, in a pompous and superior manner, made it very clear that he believed Rome had no business in Asia. We're not interested. He's, here's what he said. Asia did not concern you, the Romans, and, you are, and we are not subject to their orders. You are not subject. They are not subject to your orders. Asia does not concern you. This Roman general indeed repaid Antiochus III for his scorn, as the Scripture says. In 191 BC, Antiochus III was uprooted from Thermopylae and driven out of Thrace, and then in the following year, defeated at Magnesia in Lydia of Asia Minor. A peace ensued in 188 BC that he was forced to accept, and he had to abandon all of his conquered territory in Asia Minor to the Romans. This truly repaid him for his scorn. The Scripture was exactly accurate. That's the best way to repay someone for their scorn. I, I actually saw, and it, it, it's kind of related, um, a video of two MMA fighters where in the press release, press time, one of them was just taunting the other, just pushing him and pointing and putting his fist in his face. When the fight actually occurred, the other guy just beat him to a living pulp. So that's the kind of repayment that happened here. He had to withdraw. He lost. And he would have known that this was a repayment for his scorn. Verse 19, and then I'll ask if there's any questions. <clears throat> then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Following these significant defeats, Antiochus III returns to the cities of his land, and little is known of him after this. He was murdered in 187 B.C. while he was on a tax-collecting exercise in Susa. No, this is not a diatribe against the IRS. But that's what happens sometimes to tax collectors, at least in 180 BC, one in the 187 BC. So he was murdered on a tax collecting mission. So he, verse, verse 19, he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land. He was going to go to his own land and extract what he could. But he stumbled and fell and was no more found. So any questions about 18 and 19? Understand that the reason I'm going into such detail is that this history is undergirding what is to come when Antiochus Epiphanes takes over. And Antiochus Epiphanes is the Antichrist type. He's a type of the Antichrist. And it's all for our understanding. Nothing is different in 187 B.C. from 2023 A.D. Or whenever it is. Now, I'm not predicting I don't do that. Scripture says not to do that, and I'm going to obey that. But sometime the Antichrist is going to come, and this information will be instructive to the people of God who are in that time for their understanding of how to propagate the gospel, if nothing else. Verse 20, Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. What's the jewel of his kingdom? Israel. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger, nor in battle. Specific. Prophecy. Antiochus III was succeeded by was succeeded by Seleucus IV Philopater, one eighty seven to one seventy six, who was his son. So Antiochus' son, Antiochus III's son, was Seleucus IV. The son inherited a still fairly sizable kingdom, including Syria, Palestine, Mesopotamia, Babylonia, and now what is called Near Iran, Iran, Media, and Persia. For our purposes, the word translated here as oppressor 
is the Hebrew word for, you guessed it, collector. Comes from the idea of one who drives or impels, and then one who collects taxes. He had inherited a big kingdom, but a bankrupt kingdom. With an annual, an annual payment required by the Romans of 1,000 talents. Today, that would be somewhere near $2 billion. And just like today, back then, $2 billion was a sizable chunk of money and difficult to come up with. It would have kind of been unfathomable to a guy who was required to repay this to the upcoming power of the world. It is certain that the word oppressor, though singular here, does imply more than one tax collector, for this amount would have required a lot of plundering. And the jewel of the empire was Palestine. The man that fits the bill for the oppressor named here, it was the prime minister under Seleucus, and his name was Heliodorus. Second Maccabees chapter 3, again, good history, not scripture, relates the story of Heliodorus' attempt to seize the riches of the temple only to be, dwarfed, uh, only to be thwarted by a divine apparition. Seleucus IV, Philopater, ruled for 11 years, and then died in 176 B.C. This is a much shorter time than the 37-year reign of his father and is aptly described as a few days. The, the description is apt. Heliodorus had, had sent Seleucus for his son, Demetrius, to Rome as a hostage. We'll get back to that. We'll come back to that. For Seleucus's kingship. So Rome allowed kingships, but you had to send a hostage so that if you did things that they didn't want... They would kill the hostage, and the hostage was this man's son. Now, life was cheap back then, but we're going to assume that, that um, Seleucus loved his son, Demetrius. At any rate, it is unknown for certain how Seleucus IV died, but he was most likely murdered by Heliodorus. That's a, that's a what would you call that, um, just, just supposition. It's not in the scripture. It's supposition. And it's not actually in history. We don't really know. Upon his murder, the first great personage of this entire section comes to the throne, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, from 175 to 164. And this is the one that all of this history is giving us the context for, at least in this time period. Antiochus is known as the little horn of chapter 8, and he is a type of the Antichrist. Because of that typology, the angel fleshed out this story of this king in far more detail for Daniel. The Antichrist himself will be dealt for in verses 36 through 45. So the first seven Seleucid rulers were given front row significance by the angel to prepare a basis for the coming of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Now I'm going to drop the four just for purposes of not saying more than I need to. But the Antiochus Epiphanes we're talking about now is the bad one from 164 B.C., the Maccabean Antiochus Epiphanes, who attempted to destroy Israel. Leon Wood, so he was a, uh, who was predictive of the Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes was predictive of the Antichrist. In his commentary, Leon Wood elaborates this way. He says, the reason for the detailed history just considered is really to give background for the presentation now of the eighth Seleucid prince or 8th Seleucid ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. The first seven, as well as their Ptolemaic counterparts, were not of, significant, of sufficient significance in themselves for mention, though their combined history has had the importance of showing the ravages of warfare that flowed back and forth over Palestine. 
But the record given of them briefly stated has prepared for the introduction now of this one who is indeed of major significance. The matter to keep in mind as the text described him is that his life and activities are predictive of the life and activities of the Antichrist to come. So for our purposes as students of Scripture, this is the most important aspect of Antiochus Epiphanes. Secondary, or primary, but secondary is the damage, the horror he brought to Israel at the time. The Jews have been hated forever, and they're hated today. Um, and this is how rulers will act towards Israel if they have the power to do so. And nothing has changed. Any questions about verse 20? Verse 21. In his place... Here we go. A despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. From the outset, Antiochus Epiphanes was characterized as one who should be despised. He took the name Epiphanes, which means God manifest, and has the connotation of an illustrious or glorious one. His contemporaries considered him evil and even mad and nicknamed him Epimanes, or Epimenes, which means madman. Antiochus, the madman. That's what his contemporaries called him. Even the people of his own kingdom. Now, I don't know if there were fact-checkers at the time, but I suspect they would have said something like, this is not entirely accurate. Fact-checkers, and they would have, been, they would have covered that meme with a little opaque covering that says you need to read this information first. He was a madman. He was, he was not crazy in the sense that he was, he was bereft of his senses, but he did things that just were unusual even for the times. In another remarkable display of divine accuracy several hundred years before it even happened, the angel predicts that this particular king would not inherit the kingdom, which was normal, but would rather take it by deception as mentioned in the last verse, following Seleucus IV's death, his son Demetrius, remember Demetrius, who had been sent to Rome as a hostage, should have inherited the throne. He should have been the one that took over the throne. Demetrius was Antiochus IV's nephew. <laughs> you ever seen the connections when you look at the people in power today? This wife is the manager of NBC, and this husband is a part of the CDC, and their nephew runs the... Uh, <laughs> same thing. It's called nepotism, and it's existed since time immemorial. At any rate, Seleucus IV's, uh, as mentioned in the last verse, following Seleucus IV's death, his son Demetrius had been sent to Rome as a hostage, should have inherited the throne. Demetrius was Antiochus IV's nephew and the son of Seleucus Philopater, lover of father. There was another potential inheritor to the throne at the time, also named Antiochus, who was a baby. An official named Andronicus murdered the baby, and was subsequently put to, get, put to death by Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. Antiochus Epiphanes was in Athens when his brother Seleucus was assassinated, and he returned home and proclaimed himself king. Heliodorus had attempted to take the throne, but it disappeared and was not heard from again. That's what happens. Just when the original usurpers, including Heliodorus, thought they were secure, Antiochus IV came, or Antiochus Epiphanes came, and took the throne by deception, as the Scripture says. The intrigues were worthy of a book, unbelievable, and probably has been a book somewhere, maybe even a, class, a B movie or a C movie. Leon Wood details these details. Did I say that twice? I did. It is known that Antiochus accomplished his goal by first winning over the support of Eumanes, king of Pergamus. 
through flattery, and then doing the same with key figures in Syria itself, or the north, what we call the north, what they called the north. There is reason to believe that he promised attractive gains for their assistance, and it is known that Rome, in an endeavor to keep balance of power in the east, actually helped Antiochus at the time. They actually helped him. Keep that in mind for what comes later. Antiochus likely capitalized on Rome's help in making empty promises to those who gave the aid. This is normal for despicable people to make promises that they either can't or won't keep. Once Antiochus had secured the throne, he began his campaigns against both Egypt and against Rome, even though Rome gave him aid. Verse 22, The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. Okay. So this is a reference to an attempt by Egypt to retake the north. The literal translation is, arms of the overflow will shall be overflowed. In other words, the invading armies of Egypt, which flowed over the north, would themselves be overflowed by Antiochus, by Antiochus's army. This is also, as one commentator mentions, a general reference to all of the armies that Antiochus repelled. In his commentary, Walverd, John Walverd mentions several of the armies that were swept away during this time period. Here's what he said. The forces that Antiochus overwhelmed include, in part, the troops of Heliodorus, whom Antiochus routed with the assistance of the Pergamonian allies, and in part the Egyptian forces, which sought to deprive him of Coel Syria soon after his ascension to the throne. When Antiochus learned that the Egyptians were about to attack him, he invaded Egypt in 170 BC and defeated the Egyptians at the battle that occurred between Mount Cassius and Pelusium, an area on the southeast seacoast of the Mediterranean Sea, halfway between Gaza, Pelusium. Halfway between Gaza and the Nile Delta. So this is where that battle occurred. It is unknown for certain who the Prince of the Covenant was. There are two plausible candidates, and history records them as being destroyed by, both of them as being destroyed by Antiochus. The first is Ptolemy VI, Philometer, lover of his mother, who was the king of Egypt at the time and had succeeded his father Ptolemy Epiphanes in 181. So the first guy that could have been the Prince of the Covenant is Ptolemy VI. Since there was an agreement between Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, and the father of this Ptolemy, it would be appropriate to call him the Prince of the Covenant. The agreement was between Antiochus and the father, so this man whom Antiochus destroyed would, would be appropriate to be calling him the Prince of the Covenant. A second candidate, and in my mind, just my mind only probably, a less likely candidate, and I'll explain why, whom Antiochus had obliterated was the Jewish high priest, Anias III, whom Antiochus IV killed in 171 B.C. Antiochus IV was assisted in killing this priest by the priest's own brother, Menelaus. Either of these two men would satisfy this particular phrase in God's Word, but because the preponderance of this history deals with kings killing kings, killing kings, killing kings, it is my personal opinion that it is most likely referring to Ptolemy VI. That's my opinion. But it's not referring to the to the, the Jewish prince, priest, high priest. It's referring to Ptolemy VI. Any questions? Um, I know this is a lot of history, <laughs> and and it's intriguing. But what it will do is it will give us a basis for understanding what comes later and for what happens in the time of the Antichrist. These kinds of things are going to be happening. 
promises made and unkept, destruction, alliances, allying with people and then killing those people, unbelievable depredations, and they will be even worse than what Antiochus did. Verse 23, after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. So contextually, since this section is dealing with Egypt, this alliance is most certainly with that nation. There is no formal alliance known from history, so this would have been an informal alliance. Antiochus's four, Antiochus Epiphanes' sister, or yeah, his sister, Cleopatra I, was still in power in Egypt, and thus a friendly relationship with that nation would have been normal. Antiochus entered this relationship for purely selfish reasons. He sided with Ptolemy VI against Ptolemy VI's rival. <clears throat> Ptolemy Eurgates, his rival was Ptolemy Eurgates, so that he could consolidate his power in Egypt. That's the only reason he went into this alliance. And again, commentator Leon Wood explains this. He said, deceit is now predicted, is now predicted on Antiochus's part in relation to Egypt. Remember, it's predicted, and it happened. History shows that he offered friendship at first, as just noted, but then he later withdrew it when he became strong. Antiochus's father, Antiochus the Great, had promised the two states, Syria and Palestine, to Egypt as a dowry with Cleopatra on her marriage to Ptolemy Epiphanes. It may be assumed that Antiochus reiterated the promise on his first coming to the throne. We can assume that in order to foster the friendship he then needed. It is known that he rescinded this promise in 170 B.C. However, five years after coming to power, by marching through both areas, asserting the control of Syria over them and making the attack on Egypt set forth in verse 25, which we will see later. So he continued the promise. She's a dowry. Here are the lands that are part of her dowry. And then later he reneged on it. If the prince of Oregon will marry the prince of Montana, I'll give you Washington. Who would want Washington? But, you know... <clears throat> Maybe they could dethrone Jay. Who knows? So, despite the smaller size of the northern kingdom, as compared with the rising kingdoms of his day, Antiochus did gain power vis-a-vis -vis the nations around him. So his deception with the nations around him brought him some more power. Verse 24, in a time of tranquility. This is, yes, Rick. She ruled the kingdom. Uh, it was It was effectively by default ruled from her, by her when he was young. But once he got older, he, he began to come into his own until he was, you know, until the thing of all kings happens. <laughs> yeah, so. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. So Antiochus's modus operandi in matters of war was attack without warning, attack without warning, attack without warning. This was the sense of the idea in a time of tranquility. When it seemed peaceful, his enemies would have been off their guard and thus very um, susceptible. And at that point, Antiochus would attack. He did this for the most part on the richest parts of his kingdom, looking for the most plunder that he could grab in the least amount of time with the least resistance. Unlike his father who plundered his kingdom for his personal benefit and pleasure, Antiochus seems to have done so to distribute the riches to the poor parts of the country, thus buying their favor. This is known as welfare. A form of welfare. Pardon me. Robin Hood, yeah. I suppose. At any rate, he would 
plunder his richer parts, give it to the poorer parts. This is the violent way of taxation. It is also likely that he distributed some of his plunder to his political friends, shoring up their support. First Maccabees comments on this particular aspect of the avarice in verse, First Maccabees 3, verse 30. He feared that he should not be able to bear the charges any longer, nor to have such gifts to give so liberally as he did before, for he had abounded above the kings that were before him. And in his concern, he plundered his own country. It was easier than plundering other countries, because he had the army and they didn't. So, <laughs> can you see why they called him despicable? Even his own countrymen, they would have called him, they would have hated him. His own subjects, I should say. The strongholds that Antiochus devised schemes against were in his own country. The purpose was to prevent them from getting strong enough to support a revolution. That was the other reason. Get money from them, but also beat them down so that they could never become strong enough to, to uh, revolt. Since he was often away on campaigns, he did not want any one part of his kingdom becoming strong enough to subvert him. So that was one of the purposes. What a horrifying purpose. But only for a time, Scripture says, Scripture says, seems to refer to the idea that Antiochus' idea would only work as long as God permitted him that latitude. It all comes back to, what is, this, what is the king of the universe's timetable? Because that is what is important. After a reign of 12 years, Antiochus Epiphanes died in 164 B.C. The remaining verses in this chapter elaborate on Antiochus, and then later on, on the coming Antichrist. So even though we know that Antiochus died within 12 years of this, we're going to still see some more of his campaigns fleshed out, if I can get through them. Any comments on verse 24? 25. He will stir up strength. We're still talking about him. And courage against the king of the south with a large army, so the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. As mentioned in verse 23, once Antiochus firmed up his home base, he marched on the king of the south, Egypt. Interestingly, this verse comments both on his strength and his courage. One commentator remarked that, quote, the proper emotional attitude is necessary if one's strength is to be used most effectively, unquote. In order to continue these battles, even on a man of despicable character, it must have been trying, must have been difficult. Um, you would think, and this is just an aside, you would think his conscience, if he had one, had to bother him, that he was killing his own countrymen, plundering them, taking their booty and distributing it to kings around him, to other parts of the kingdom. So he would have had to stir up his courage. <laughs> Egypt was ruled at this time by Ptolemy Philometer, who was one of two sons of Cleopatra and was Antiochus's nephew. In 170 B.C., as noted in the exposition of verse 23, when Ptolemy Philometer realized that Antiochus Epiphanes was not going to keep his father's promise to Egypt, Ptolemy attempted to seize control of Syria and Palestine. Antiochus fielded a very large army, but apparently Ptolemy fielded an even larger army, as the Scripture says. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia Online gives this abbreviated description. It says, Ptolemy VI, surnamed Philometer, fond of his mother, older son of Ptolemy V, whom he succeeded in 182 B.C. For the first seven years of his reign, his mother Cleopatra, as you pointed out, acted as queen regent, and peace was maintained until with Syria until 173 B.C. 
Antiochus Epiphanes invaded, then invaded Egypt, defeated the Egyptians at Pelusium, and secured the person of Philometer, whom he spared, hoping to employ him as a tool to gain ascendancy over Egypt. Philometer's brother was now proclaimed king by the Alexandrians in Egypt. Philometer's brother. With the title of Eurgates. When Antiochus retired, Philometer made peace with his brother, conceding him a share of the government in 170 BC. This displeased Antiochus Epiphanes, who marched against Alexandria but was stopped beneath the walls by the Roman embassy in obedience to whom he withdrew. So the battle was fought at Pelusium, just beyond the very eastern edge of the Nile Delta, which is what I mentioned earlier. Increasingly, interestingly, Antiochus IV had campaigned to the very border of of Egypt. Due to treachery, the schemes devised against him, Ptolemy VI was defeated, but Antiochus did not have him killed. Verse 26, this is more of the intrigue. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will follow him, will fall down slain, excuse me. So those who eat his choice food. This is a flowery way of saying his trusted, his trusted counselors. The very men who ate at his table betrayed him. And even though his large army was in the vernacular of ancient battles, overflowing, he lost the battle and many of his soldiers were killed. Ptolemy VI was taken captive by Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 27, as for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but will not, it will not succeed for the end is still to come at the appointed time. What is it about lying that you, you, you continually have to lie in order to support the last lie? And you know what? It's a very difficult way to live because you have to remember all the lies. Now, how did I lie that time? I better remember that. So I don't know if they wrote him down or what, but he would have had to maintain a pretty good record of his lies in order to continue the, uh, the scam, the schemes. Hopefully unknown to the other, each king was bent internally on evil towards the other. <laughs> How's that going to turn out? Antiochus professed, professed friendship for Ptolemy, bringing into the discussion their blood-tie relationship. Well, we're brothers. We're, you're my nephew, and we need to be in this together, is probably how he said it. As mentioned in the piece from online, the online encyclopedia earlier, the people of Alexandria, Egypt, coronated Ptolemy Eurgates as king. He was later nicknamed Physcon, which is Greek for pot-bellied. I don't think it was a beloved nickname because he was overweight. Antiochus IV pretended to be a friend to the older brother whom he had captured in battle as a hedge against the upstart King Ptolemy VII. Likely, Antiochus planned to join with one brother against the other to take back Egypt. He installed Ptolemy VI as king in Memphis. So Antiochus lied to Ptolemy IV, and Ptolemy IV pretended to believe while always secretly distrusting him. This is not a foundation for a good ruling relationship or any other kind of relationship. Antiochus departed for Syria, and very close after that, the two brothers formed an agreement with the other brother, the older brother, Ptolemy VI, marrying his sister, Cleopatra II, who then became queen. 
two, the two brothers likely planned to wrest Egypt from Antiochus' control. This precipitated Antiochus' attempt to break up the combination, but that's when he was stopped by Rome in 168 B.C. And so the end, still future, by the prediction of the angel, resulted in their plans failing. For it was not the time of the end specified by God, but rather by those men. And so God reminds Daniel in this verse, in this prediction from the angel, that <clears throat> though the angel, through the angel, that everything is on his timetable, not man's. So Daniel's hearing these things, looking into the future, and seeing all these combinations of kings against kings, and them attempting to Im impose their will on kingdoms. And God reminds Daniel, though it's not, he says, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. This is not the end, Daniel. It's my timetable that matters. Well, we're going to have to stop there. If we take nothing from this section, and I believe we can take a lot looking at the history and the deception and the evil that goes on in the hearts of men in every age who are not redeemed by the Savior, that history is an evil thing to remember, but there are some good things to remember as well. And those good things are that God he predicted this. And then what happened? It came to pass. It came to pass, God, exactly as God predicted. And what he has predicted for the rest of time will come to pass. And I just want to remind us that that's a comfort. That is a comfort to us. I, I'm finding more and more for myself, more and more encouragement and comfort as I read through the Scriptures. I'm, I'm, I, try, I try to read through the Bible. And for those of you who are OCD like I used to be and maybe still am, man, if I missed a day, I had to make it up. And I'm just continually reading. When I miss a day because I'm reading something else, I start it that day. Don't, don't let that throw you off. So you don't make it by December 31st. Maybe you make it by March 2nd. Then start March 3rd for your next read-through. And nobody will die. But you will learn more about the Scripture. So I'm in John right now in my read-through, but I, like a dummy, I started reading Revelation the other day, and I forgot how exciting that was too. So <laughs> this book is the best book in the Bible because we're in it. Uh, whatever book you're in, that's God's best for you at the time. As we read through, let's just remember, God gives us these things for Peter. No, he doesn't give us these things for Peter. That, Peter, you had a question. God gives us these things for instruction, for correction, for rebu rebu rebuke and reproof. Let us take them that way and remind ourselves that there's comfort in all of that. He brings us back to level with Christ. He moves us on, understanding that what he said is true and that his timetable, his sovereignty will always be paramount. Peter, you had a question. Yes, Anytime I read from non-canonical books, including 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Maccabees, I will never read from Bell and the Dragon, but from 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees, they are for historical context. They are not Scripture. Any questions before we close? Are you comforted? It's, it's going to be exactly as God said. It's going to be exactly on His timetable. Nothing will be lost, not one jot, nor one tittle. Nothing will be added, not one jot, nor one tittle. It will be perfect, according to Scripture. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.